0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here this afternoon, if I was to ask you the question, just what is Christianity, how would you answer that? Just what is Christianity? How would we define it? We're not strangers to that question, are we? The question comes to mind in the hearts of people every day, the world over, and our text of this afternoon is a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the very heart of that question. Our text of this afternoon cuts through all of the external baggage and goes right to the juggler, if you will, defining the parameters of true Christian faith. In answer to that question, the born-again heart of a child of God answers Christianity is a person, first of all. And all that is rightly associated with Christianity finds its center of gravity in that person. It's as the Reverend John Stott writes, the person and work of Jesus Christ are the foundation rock upon which the Christian religion is built and stands. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel Christianity. There's nothing left. Christ is is the center of Christianity and all else is circumference. Christianity then is a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and and nothing about Christianity can be rightly understood until there is true saving faith in Christ and true saving faith puts men and women in an intimate and a personal relationship with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this truth was well-known and well-understood by the Apostle Paul. That That was his conviction, and it was his experience. And our text of this afternoon is his expression, his expression of that truth. This text should be rightly taken with Galatians 2, verse 20, where we hear him saying the same thing in different words. There we hear him crying out jubilantly, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And now these two verses, one from the early part of Paul's ministry and one from the end of his ministry, summarize the living essence of Paul's faith. His relationship to the person of Christ and the work of Christ on his behalf was the very heart or heart throb, if you will of all of Paul's life and all of Paul's ministry. So what we hear in our text of this afternoon, first of all, is Paul's personal confession of hope and comfort in the midst of his trials and persecution. You'll have noticed with me from the 12th verse onward, the apostle has been been writing about himself and about the difficult circumstances. Perhaps you want to read the rest of this chapter, all of this chapter, or the two chapters for your evening devotions But from verse 12 on, the apostle has been writing about himself and about the difficult circumstances in which he finds himself, but he speaks about himself and he speaks about his distressing circumstances all within the context of the gospel. We notice that Paul writes to his friends much differently than you and I perhaps would do were we writing a letter to our friends in similar circumstances. Paul writes to his friends and he informs them that He would not have the congregation ignorant about the terrible things that happened to him. But the remarkable feature here, and and what we need to capture here, is that the apostle writes about the terrible things that happened to him in relation to Christ. No, more specifically, he writes about the terrible things that happened to him in relation to the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's entire focus... In this letter so far has been on the gospel. The question for him is not what will happen to Paul. His question is not what will happen to me. No, for him the question is what will become of the gospel. Paul has been a prisoner now for about two years. And in similar circumstances were we to be writing the letter to our friends. We would probably devote most of the letter writing about our terrible circumstances. We would tell of the prison conditions and we would write of the prison guards (coughs) and how they treat or mistreat us. We would tell of the lack of food and the filthy conditions in the institution. We would tell of our loneliness. We would talk about our despair and and the injustice of it all. Those are the things that would probably be found in our letters to our friends in similar circumstances, but it strikes us that Paul writes about none of that. The entire question for Paul was what influence will my chains have with respect to the furtherance of the gospel? What is my situation going to do to the preaching of the gospel? Will the gospel preaching be hindered by my imprisonment or by my death? That was his all-consuming concern. I administer God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, Death's gain. We will hear a marvelous confession. We will learn of the firm basis for that confession. And finally, we'll learn of the pure gain encompassed in the confession. So a marvelous confession, a firm basis for the confession, and the pure gain encompassed in the confession. People of God, we need to fix the context. We need to set the stage. And we need to set the context a little bit We heard Paul write in the verses 12 through 14 that his bonds were in Christ. He writes that he did not suffer as an evildoer. And as a result, he goes on to say that as a result of his change, he was able to preach to the prison guards. You can read about that in the few earlier verses of the chapter He was able to preach to the prison guards, and as a result of his change, the new Christians in the surrounding area had become more bold to speak of their own faith. In other words, Paul explains that his imprisonment has become a means to an end. His imprisonment had, in fact, served for the spreading of the gospel he was able to preach to the guards who were, who were chained to him. These guards would go home and tell their wives the marvelous things that they had heard from this, 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 this man. And the Christians in the area who were afraid of persecution now became much more bold, according to the scriptures. But in the verses 16 through 18, we hear him crying out that, oh, it is true that some people preach Christ out of envy and strife and that others preach Christ out of goodwill, but what does it matter? The main point is that Christ is being preached, and in that I rejoice, he says, and I will keep rejoicing. But don't misunderstand, people of God. Paul was not saying that he was indifferent about sound doctrine. The apostle is not indifferent as to who preaches and how Christ is preached, as as has been explained by some expositors. He is not saying here that it makes no difference which doctrines are preached as long as Christ is central to the preaching. Oh, no. In Galatians chapter 1, we hear Paul thundering his scathing indictment with the words, If anyone preach another gospel than that which I have preached, even should it be an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. Would we now expect the same apostle to say, It makes no difference how you preach as long as Christ is preached? Of course not. What Paul was saying there was that he had little concern about the motives in the hearts of those who preach. In other words, Paul, Paul, it did not concern Paul. It did not concern Paul that these men were preaching Christ in an effort to undermine Paul's ministry. We learn from Scripture that at the time there were preachers in the church who in fact were enemies of Paul. They were envious of Paul, and they tried to draw the disciples away from Paul to themselves. Now, says Paul, that makes no difference to me if only they preach Christ. If no false doctrine is preached and Christ is preached, then I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Throughout it all, we see Paul's concern, first of all, is for the gospel. People have got to understand this with me. The Apostle Paul analyzes his personal difficult circumstances. He sees them being used for the furtherance of the gospel. He sees that Christ is being preached, albeit from different motives. And then finally he says that the whole thing will turn out for his salvation. Whether I be free to preach or whether I be in prison and cannot preach, it will all turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. Indeed, he says, whether I live or whether I die, Christ shall be magnified. For me to live as Christ and for me to die is gain. That now is the context as we approach our text of this afternoon and what we now need to capture here first of all is this of this marvelous this is a marvelous confession of paul it is a personal confession of the personal faith of paul we need to understand that paul is not simply setting forth a doctrine here that is of course true the statement to die is gain is doctrine but what we have here in this context is a personal confession of the apostle paul for we hear him saying for me for me to live is christ And for me, for me to die is gain. It's a tremendous personal confession packed with significance and impregnated with profound meaning. In these few words, we are brought face to face with the most important question that can ever face us namely, what is life all about? What is living? Here we stand face to face with the most thorough and searching test of our entire Christian profession. Understand this well with me. The question has relevance only for the child of God. It means nothing to the unbeliever. The Bible has nothing to say to unbelievers. And so the words of our text are directed to you and to me. The question comes, the question comes, the question comes, people of God, to the church. Congregation, the temptation here is to set this entire text into a personal experience of Paul and then to examine it from his perspective, in his circumstances, and then to leave it there and leave us unaffected. We tend to try to escape Scripture's hard personal questions by a superficial reading of it only in a general and an impersonal way. But we need to bring this confession home. We need to examine this confession in our own circumstances. Scripture has no value for you if you separate yourself from it. Oh, indeed, the experience and the confession here is Paul's, but the same, quest- same confession must be true for every Christian. Never would the apostle recognize any essential difference between himself and any other Christian. The thought that there was one kind of Christianity for him and another kind for everyone else would be completely foreign to him. Oh, indeed, along with him, we recognize that there are differences in gifts and talents and offices. We learned that in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. But while there are indeed differences in gifts and talents as children of God, being in Christ, our lives must evidence those gifts to the measure which God has given them to us that's why the apostle constantly talks of we what is true of him must be true of us all what is true of him must be true for all christians and so here in this confession in our text even us here even we here in in allura we are faced with the most searching and searing test we can ever apply to ourselves the question for us, then, congregation, is this. Can we say this of ourselves? Can we make this confession of Paul our own? Can we say that for us to live is Christ? It's a momentous and a significant question, for only when we are able to make that confession, only then will we participate in the joy of the Lord in the same sense that Paul speaks with throughout all of this letter to the Philippians, despite his difficult circumstances in life. People of God, you need to gird up the loins of your mind with me this afternoon, and you will need to capture this. This concept here in this text is urgent. You see, when we fix the confession into the context of Paul's experience for a moment, then see with me what we find. There is Paul. There is Paul languishing in prison. And he raises the question, he says, here I am. Here I am. I am bound in chains. I am unjustly accused. I am waiting. awaiting the fate, my fate at the hands of my accusers. I am suffering unjustly at the hands of false accusers. How will it all end? I have no idea. I may languish here for years. I may be set free tomorrow. I may live another 20 years, or I may be put to death tomorrow. I have no idea, but, he continues, but... The fact that I find myself in this condition, that is immaterial to me. Because, because if I live for another 20 years, for me that means Christ. And if I'm put to death tomorrow, it still means Christ. In other words, says Paul, for me living is Christ. And Christ for me is living. For me it's the same thing. People, go, Do you hear it? Do you understand it? Paul here makes a fundamental distinction between Christians and non-Christians. The thing that characterizes the Christian, says Paul, is that all of the Christian's living is Christ. The person and the work of Christ is his all for the Christian. My dear precious saints of God, let's work this out for just a moment. If you were to ask the average man on the street of his view of life, and this is where the confession of Paul would also begin to test us so sharply, perhaps even painfully. If we were to ask the average man or woman on the street, what is living? What does living hold or what does living mean for you? Is it not true that most would say, the most important thing in my life is my family, my home, my children, my career, my business, my farm? my car my truck my wife my husband my boyfriend my girlfriend my children isn't it true that for most people life means our earthly possessions and our intimacy and companionship with our loved ones within our family circle and what paul now wants us to consider is but what but what if what if what if these things are taken away what if these things are all taken away then where would your happiness be It would be gone. It would be gone. Your world and your joy in life would collapse, would it not? But, 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 says Paul, for me to live is Christ. What Paul is saying is that his greatest love is Christ. And that love for Christ dominates Paul's whole life and all of Paul's living. What the apostle is really saying about himself here is, I may live another 20 years, but what if I do? What is it going to mean? What am I going to do with my life for those 20 years? People of God, what Paul wants us to understand here is that life consists of more than eating and drinking, sleeping and rising, working or playing. Paul here is talking about the real purpose in life, He is stating his motivating principle of life. And what we need to capture here is that Paul is stating his whole reason for living. And he's asking of each of us, even even, even each of us here in Laura, he's asking us to consider that same question. Paul is asking, what is your real purpose in life? What motivates you? He is referring to what interests and, mo- and, and what motivates you as to how you spend your time on this earth. A very personal and yet a very real and burning question, congregation. It's not a general question. It comes to us as seniors. It comes to us as middle-aged, as parents, even as teenagers and children. What is the joy in your life? What is it that you want out of life? What drives you? What motivates you? What is the love of your life? Capture this with me. The thing that is characteristic of all true love is that we're always thinking about this specific object of our true love. Ask any young man or a young woman. They can hardly think of anything else than that beautiful creature whom they love so intensely. And in this context now, it becomes the question of Matthew 6. Where is your treasure, asks the Lord. And now, says Paul, in answer to that question, for me to live is Christ. He is the object of my love. He is the all-consuming purpose of my life. It is my intense love for him that motivates me and moves me. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that his one desire... His one desire was to know Christ. That's what he longed for, to know him more and more in the power of his resurrection. That was paramount. That was above all else for him. That was his whole reason for living and once having come come to know him. That was now the reason for all of his rejoicing throughout all of this letter all of his living, all of his joy, all of his rejoicing centered around the Christ whom he had come to know as his personal Savior. Oh, see with me now how it all begins to fit. Now in the context of all that we've been hearing about from, from him in this chapter, Paul is saying he has spent his time spreading the good news of God's grace in Christ. And that's the important thing, that Christ may be preached by him or by someone else. If I remain another 20 years, well, I will continue to simply preach Christ. There he is in prison, people of God. And he's saying, my imprisonment has served to further the gospel, and in that I rejoice. He sums it all up so beautifully in the last chapter when he says, I have learned. I have learned that in whatever circumstances I find myself therein to be content, for Christ has delivered me from it all, and I love him. That's his confession here, and that is precisely what we see in his life. His circumstances were desperate, and yet, people of God, and yet, people of God, as he was staring death in the face, he was prepared. He was preparing to be poured out as a drink offering. He was expecting the martyr's death, and throughout it all, he says, I rejoice, and I want you to rejoice with me. It causes us to, to tremble in amazement. But as we continue reading the text, and we see that Paul is not simply building castles in the air, no, his confession has a, a solid basis. And the same must be true of every Christian. If we ourselves wish to have part in this confession, if we want to take that same confession upon our lips, then we too must know the basis on which our confession is grounded. And Paul has that knowledge. Therefore he is able to say, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Those two confessions must stand or fall together. It's only because he can say, first of all, that for me to live is Christ, that therefore he can go on to say, for me to die is gain. What does that now mean? Well, follow this with me. You see, In the first part of the confession, Paul uses a strong expression. He does not say, he does not say, it is my joy to live for Christ. He might have said that, and the expression would be correct, but that's not what he says. What Paul does here is that he connects these two statements, living and dying, with Christ. He identifies the two statements as one. You see, if we were to ask Paul, what does it mean for you to live? He would say, for me to live here, for me to live on this earth, for me to live while dwelling here below is Christ and only Christ. Therefore, he would say, therefore, since he is my all, take Christ away and you kill me. Take Christ away and I die. Take Christ away and I'm not living anymore. Oh, says Paul, you may take everything else away. Take my house, my business, my farm, my wife, my husband, my children. Take it all away and leave me, Jesus, and I am still living. But take Christ away, and I cease to live. Then I die. Oh, the worldling says money, pleasure, a career, my family. That's my life. Take that away, and I have no life. My life ceases to have purpose without that. That's always the tenor of the world. Leave me the world and my life has meaning, but take away my earthly pleasures and my intimacy with my loved ones and my life has little or no meaning. People have got in the light of the apostles' confession here. The Holy Spirit begins to probe our own hearts and the Holy Spirit asks us if the expression of our own life identifies more with Paul's or with the world's. Do you want Christ? Or do you want the world? Understand me well here. Of course, we would not say, give me the world. God's grace would forbid anyone who belongs to Christ from making such a crass confession. But does it not happen to us so often that especially in years of prosperity that a large percentage of our life and living is taken up and so swallowed up with concerns and things of this world that we are hardly able to honestly say for me to die is gain. Listen to the apostle. He is concerned, first of all, with the honor and the glory of the Lord. That is the theme of joy that is woven throughout all of this letter. To live is Christ, says Paul, Philippians 1.21 that means you derive your strength from Christ, Philippians 4.13. It is to have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2.5. It is to know Christ with the knowledge of Christian experience, Philippians 3.9. It is to be content in all circumstances, Philippians 4.13. It is to be anxious about nothing, Philippians 4.6. No matter, no matter how difficult the circumstances, that is the whole source of joy that Paul proclaims in this letter of joy to the Philippians, to know and to Love and to live for Christ every waking moment of his life. That is Paul's joy. Christ is the subject, Christ is the object of all of his his all-consuming love. Love for Christ was the only all-encompassing, motivating principle of his entire life. Christ lives in him. It is the Christ of God that gives color and direction to his life. And that now, people of God, that now must be true of every believer, young and old. If Christ lives in us, then he is also our life in the sense that our all-inclusive, motivating principle in this life is to love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, being in possession of Christ then, when you are asked, what is your life? What does it mean to you? What is your life with regards to your mind, your will, your heart? You will answer Christ. If you were asked, what is your life with regards to your home, your farm, your business, if you were asked to what do you commit, your time, your treasure, and your talent, and you will answer Christ. What is your life with regards to your possessions? Christ. What is your life with regards to all things? And You will say Christ. You will say Christ. He is all the world to me. People, God, you cannot live Christ part-time. You cannot live any part of your life without Christ. If we understand what Paul is teaching us here, if we understand the all-inclusive life in Christ that Paul sets before us here, then it becomes clear that Christ and Christ's honor must be your chief and your only concern in all areas of your life, all day, every day, in every way. Oh, now follow me as Paul ties it all together so beautifully in our text. For me to die is gain. Now we understand. First of all, if my home or my business is my life, then death is not a gain, for I will lose my home or my business when I die. If money or possessions are my life, then death will not be a gain, for I will lose it all when I die. I cannot take it with me. But but, but if for me to live is Christ. Then for me to die is gain because, because, because I will gain Christ. Yes, in a certain sense that is correct, but much, much more is implied here, infinitely more. You see, what is death biblically? Separation of body and soul, yes, but that's cold theology or philosophy. Death in the biblical sense is that the new man. The new creation that we have become in Christ, which has been struggling with the old man all of our lives, finally separates and leaves the old man behind. Simply defined people of God, that means that at the death of the child of God, all earthly imperfections fall away. You know what I mean. So did Paul. While still on this earth, there is still so much sin So much failure, so much lukewarmness, so much doubt, so much backsliding, and so much imperfection that still clings to us. That perfection which is required of us will not be possible for us on this side of the grave, and that sin grieves us. But at death, all of that falls away, and we become a perfect creation. All of our imperfection leaves us Everything leaves us in death. Our home, our family, our friends, our loved ones, our business, our farms, our money, our investment, and our sinful imperfections. Everything leaves us except, except, except Christ. Death cannot take him away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Christ is eternal. And nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in him. All that death can do to the Christian is to totally, radically, and finally eradicate the old man or the old sinful nature which we have received in Adam. All that death can do to the Christian is to remove that earthly sinful tabernacle and usher us into the new and heavenly perfection of Jerusalem. Ah, my dear, precious saints of God, when to live for Christ is true for you, then to die is gain for you. That's what Paul wants us to know in our text. Death will mean not only that you will actually be with Christ and at home with the Lord, but death holds even more comfort, it holds even more glory for you. Death will be great gain for you because, because, because death will be the gateway Death will be the entrance, oh, to heaven to be sure. But death will also mean entrance to clearer and fuller knowledge, a more wholehearted perfection, a more exuberant joy, a more rapturous adoration of and in the Christ. And all of it will then be done in perfection. And all of it will be done in perfect love, focused on the Christ of God. Oh, my dear precious people of God, tremble in amazement with me and try to capture that with me. Tremble in amazement with me. The thought almost boggles our minds. What we've heard Paul saying in our text of this afternoon was that for him, his whole life was motivated by a desire to love, to serve, to worship, to praise, and to glorify God. In all of his earthly living, he sought to magnify the Lord. He confesses further that someday he will pass from this earth and then and then he will be able to serve and to love and to glorify Christ perfectly. And that was his desire in life and in death. He sought to glorify God while alive, but he knew that he did it still imperfectly. But he also knew that finally the day would come when he would die and then he would love and glorify God perfectly for all eternity. That was Paul's all-consuming desire. And therefore we hear him say, for me to live now is to love Christ, and for me to die is, to gain, is gain, for then I will love him even more. May it be so for each of us and our children. Let's pray. now unto jehovah you sons of the mighty all glory and strength and dominion accord ascribe to him glory and render him honor in beauty of holiness worship the lord amen for our song of application would you turn with me again to psalm 16 and this time we'll sing stanza four and five